If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and a Kentucky gunmaker. Welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast, where we uncover low-known facts of uncommon history. History is full of curious characters and interesting stories you'll never discover in any textbook. We uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between. Hey, before we begin our podcast, I have a couple of updates. We're now on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, so please make sure to friend us or follow us on our social media platforms so you can stay up to date with our podcast. Also, we're sharing historical pictures and documents from Harold's personal collection on our social media pages. Some are very rare, and you will not see these anywhere else, so make sure you friend us. Also, if you have any questions about our podcast, follow the link at the bottom of our page notes. Uh, it will take you to our Anchor FM homepage where you can leave us a voice message. So if you have a question about our podcast or maybe like for us to include uh, a certain topic in an upcoming episode, please let us know and we'll try to use it in the future. And as always, please leave a five-star review and share a podcast with your friends. This will help others find us so we can grow. Thank you. Now to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, in our last podcast, we uh, interviewed actor Steve Zahn, who has a role in The Good Lord Bird, which is on Showtime. The series covers the life of John Brown. In this episode, we're going to cover John Brown and uh, Benjamin Mills, who is from Harrisburg, Kentucky, and their connection. But before we get into uh, Ben Mills, pre-Civil War Kansas was a battleground for men that upheld slavery and those who attacked it. Most people moved to Kansas to build a home, and start a new life, but John Brown moved to Kansas for another reason. Harold, what was that reason? Well, John Brown was a was an abolitionist, and he he uh, was a very fiery, um, I think, enthusiastic would be calling it short. <laughs> he was a, a a very fanatical guy, a very radical thinker. Um, he uh, he despised slavery. Um, he did, he uh, Benjamin Mills, as we will talk about later. Um, s- described him as being a very sensible man until you mentioned the word Negro around him and he went wild. So he had a, he had a very passion against slavery. He, he really despised slavery. The, the Kansas-Missouri conflict, you know, Kansas was trying to be admitted into the Union, the union as a slave state. Oh, okay. And the Missourians were free state. So they were, you know, I'm sorry, Kansas was a free state. Missouri was a slave state. And so there was that natural tension on the border that escalated into 
well, it turned into the Civil War. You know, it started in the West as much as it did in the East, maybe before. Uh, and this started in the 1850s out there. You know, it didn't start right up until the Civil War. It was it was going on for some time. Was John Brown's intentions to get the Civil War or get a war started between the states because of slavery? Well, um, he wanted the slaves to uh, he wanted the slaves to rise up against their their uh, slave owners. I mean, he he wanted the slaves to do this. He wanted to arm them, and that's what we're going to get into later. He wanted them to become an army themselves. He wanted an army, John Brown's army. You know, okay. uh, he yes, he 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 collected arms and, and and guns and pikes and all kinds of ammunition and things to fight a war. Yeah, he was, but it was going to be his war. I mean, that's why he he believed God. It was a, he was on a mission from God to do this. <laughs> like I say, he was a very fanatical thinker. You know, and um, he stirred a lot of passions both ways. Okay. All right, so where do you want to take off with uh, Ben Mills, who happens to be from, or Benjamin Mills, who happens to be from Harrisburg, Kentucky? Well, I know Ben Mills from several years ago. I found a rifle one time, traded for it. I never heard of the man. Uh, I've collected Kentucky rifles all my life and studied that stuff. And uh, I found this rifle marked B. Mills, Harrisburg, Kentucky. <laughs> and it came out of an attic of a house in Harrisburg. So I took it home, and I was fascinated. I was about 23 years old, and I had never seen one before, never heard of it. And someone had told me, he said, there's a marker at the head of Main Street in Harrisburg about this guy. So I take off over there, and being history-minded guy I am, I start looking at everything, and I'm like, wow. There was a marker there, and it had B. Mills, Benjamin Mills, armor, sits right at the head of Main Street in Harrisburg. So that got me going. I was like, wow, man, this guy was somebody. You know, right. So uh, anyway, that one thing led to another. Thirty years later, forty years later, I'm still <laughs> researching. I don't think I'll ever get done with him. Uh, I have two volumes of stuff on him, and I find him fascinating. But most gunmakers didn't have an interesting story. You know, I, I've researched others, and they you know they just worked in a shop. Their work, their product of their hand, was what you see was their legacy, pretty much. You didn't. They didn't make the news. You know, hardly right. ever. So, but this guy was a little different. And he was he was caught up in times that was larger than himself, you know. He was an instrument there of <laughs> of uh, of the times, you might say. He was born in uh, New York, actually, uh, in eighteen and ten, and he moved to Canada, and that's where he was taught the gunsmith trade. And uh, I don't know who taught him. I've been trying for years. I've got people, friends that live in Canada that's tried to help me. Uh, he's kind of a mystery where he learned the trade. For those of us that collect to study the stuff. Uh, we recognize his work stands out dramatically different than anything else that was going on here. Wow. So uh, he had he put out a quality rifle. Not only quality, he was cutting edge technology for his day. Okay. See he was the he was he was on the cutting edge of doing basically I don't know of anything that he could do to a gun that he didn't do that would make it accurate or more dependable or whatever. His stuff was some of the finest mechanically made guns ever made in the muzzleloading era. Wow. He was a tremendous craftsman. And he made a lot of it. Um, there, there's a lot of them out there. And, uh, but uh, he, he came to Kentucky in 1838 in Mason County. And he didn't stay there but a year or two. Then he moved to Stanford in Lincoln County. And he stayed there a year or two. And then he moved to Harrodsburg. Well, what brought him to Harrodsburg? Well, I don't know what brought him to Kentucky. I'd love to know. I wish I could sit down and talk to him. But uh, he came to Harrodsburg because of Graham Springs and Resort. 
we think that the reason he settled there, Graham Springs was the Saratoga of the West. It was, it was a place that people came from the South, um, primarily from the South. I'm sure they came from the North and other places. But in the summertime, in the oppressive heat of the low country in South Carolina, Georgia, maybe even Florida, uh, they would escape to the North, those that had the money and the means to do it. They would come to places like Harrodsburg, and that's where they would spend a few weeks to get away from that heat. And also the water was supposedly uh, gave the therapeutic... Miracle water. Miracle water, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it was good for them health-wise. They bathed in it. They drank it. Um, and, of course, later we proved that probably had nothing to do with good health. But right. at the time, <laughs> that was the technology of the day, of the medical technology. But um, another thing, too, Dr. Graham, Christopher Graham that owned Graham Springs, he dra- graduated from Transylvania Medical College in Lexington, Kentucky. That was the cutting-edge medical technology of its day. There was no UK Med Center. <laughs> right, that was the that medical was the school day. for, right. Actually started in Danville, but they moved it to uh, Lexington. And then you had Dr. Ephraim McDowell in Danville, who had p- performed the first successful ovarian uh, operation. Ovarian. Ovarian. Right. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> he. Uh, so you had these guys that were steeped in medical history here, and Dr. Graham was one of those. So he he was a, quite an athlete himself. Now, I could we could do a whole podcast about Christopher Graham because he's a fascinating character. And and by the way, he was a tremendous rifle shot. And there was this club that they started in 1820, long before Ben Mills ever came there. It was called the Boone Shooting Club. Okay. And that was the UK basketball or the Pittsburgh Steelers or whatever sports we have. That was the only about the only sport they had was horse racing and rifle shooting. Right. So this this uh, club lasted for years, and Dr. Christopher Graham was one of the best shots to ever to ever uh, be a member of that club. Uh, he had a there was a ten thousand dollar wager in the eighteen fifties that no one could beat him offhand, huh. and he wasn't ever beaten. Wow! No, he was never beaten. So he used a Mills rifle. Of course, Mills kept a record of his shooting skills and everything. So um, when um, when that resort, he sold that resort in 1852, I believe it was, to the U.S. government. And we don't know all the reasons for that, but he and his wife moved out west, and he sold the resort, and the and uh, that really hurt Benjamin Mills' business. Um, he had a tremendous gun trade built up from these people that were coming to this resort. Where was this resort located in Harrodsburg? It was close to his shop, which was at the head of Main Street. Okay. And we'll, by the way, Brian, we'll put a, some pictures of that up on our social media, social media, okay, so people can see it. It was quite a thing. Uh, in uh, eighteen and forty-seven, they did three hundred thousand dollars worth of improvements to it. Hmm. So you can imagine. I mean, that'd be like maybe three million today. I don't know. Yeah. Today's dollars. But this was no small affair. I mean, there was they had bands that played every night. They had parties. They had, uh, you know. The who's who would be at Graham Springs. That was the place. You know, it lasted for many years. But when he sold it, um, Mills lost all of his business. So then he turns his attention toward a government job at Harper's Ferry Arsenal. And I don't know how that developed, whether he asked for it or he said in his letter of resignation that he was offered the job. And he took it. And he went there 
1858, and okay. he was master armorer. Now, the master armorer is a head mechanic. He's the guy that oversees all the operations of everything to make sure quality control and so forth. Harper's Ferry was the first government arsenal for the United States government. When we first became a nation, we had to have an armory to make muskets to supply our troops. So Harper's Ferry was the first one. Okay. So this is uh, there was Springfield Armory on at that time and maybe a couple others, but there weren't that many. So this was quite a prestigious job for him. Um, I have been there twice, and I saw the house that he lived in, which is the which is what they call now the paymaster's house, which is up on the hill above the uh, operations down in the valley by the river, and uh, it's quite a house. It's a beautiful place. It's a, it's a mansion by today's standards. Huh. Um, he also um, had some problems there. Um, it didn't seem like that he got along well with the other armor or other people. Um, in uh, October of in 1859, he Alfred M. Barber was the superintendent of the armory. He left on a business trip to Springfield Armory. In his absence, he appointed his ch chief clerk, Kitzmiller, to oversee the operations of the armory, which absolutely infuriated Mills. And uh, I have his letter of resignation or a copy of it from Harper's Ferry uh, Archive. And he said he preferred anything to that malicious degradation, and he turned his resignation in to be effective November 1st, 1859. <laughs> okay. Well, if he'd have known what I know, he would <laughs> like to have left a little bit earlier. A little earlier, yeah. <laughs> so in that month that he was going to be leaving on his way out, John Brown comes to town. Uh, the whole stage has changed. Everything is turned upside down. Uh, Mills, first of all, I often wondered for years, how did he end up as a hostage in the engine house? Now, the engine house was the fire engine house, okay? And we'll have a picture of that on our social media. It was actually like a fire station. And although they didn't have trucks, they had horse-drawn pump pumps. And they kept these in there and kept them in good uh, working order. So was it for the armory or was it for the city? No, no, it was just for the armory. Okay, so. Yeah. All right. And uh, so they kept this in this brick building. By the way, this brick building that you're going to see pictures of was actually disassembled <laughs> and reassembled and traveled to the World's Fairs. People actually could see this building at so, some World's Fairs. So yeah. they would set it up. Yeah, take it down. A brick building. And then take it back. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's back there now, of course, and it's been moved from its original site where Mills was taken hostage and John Brown incident. It, it's been moved. But uh, it was there uh, <laughs> on tour for some time. I guess people were so fascinated with this story that they, they wanted to see the building that all this happened. So Mills is sitting, eating breakfast one morning, October the 17th, is 1859. He's sitting eating breakfast. And the chief clerk's little son comes running up the hill, knocks on the door. He said, Mr. Mills, he said, uh, my dad and some of the other men want you to come down to the armory. He said, there's a man down here and said he's trying to take over the armory. And Mills says, okay, uh, let me get my shoes on. I'll be right there. So he said, we walked back down the hill. And uh, I'd like to read. I have uh, an 1881 interview 
with the Louisville Courier Journal, Courier Journal, excuse me, of this uh, of Mills talking about actually what happened there. Okay. So he said about sunrise aboard a name of Kitzmiller, son of the Armory Chief Clerk, arrived just as I was starting down to breakfast with my family. I did not have the least suspicion of any trouble, and the news commu- communicated to me was a great shock. On entering, he exclaimed, Major, Paul wants you to come down immediately. A mob is taking the armory. I, I put on my hat and accompanied the boy and walked quickly down to the armory. Uh, I and the men, chief clerk, Mr. Ball, machinist, excuse me, let me read that over. Going down, I met the chief clerk, Mr. Ball, the master machinist, and I inquired, gentlemen, what is the matter? And Mr. Kitzmiller said, a mob has taken the armory, and I think they are abolitionists. I told him it must be a, a, a lot of Irish who had been at work on the dam and getting on a spree had committed to capture the works. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Kitzmiller told me I was mistaken. And he said, I looked and I saw that man, and uh, he said it was Brown. And he said, I had seen him here before. So now I want to read to you what, how he described seeing John Brown. Okay. He said, I, could, I took a good look at Brown. He was an old man, 59 years of age, and stood about 5 feet 9 or 10 inches. He had no teeth, and his hair was rather long. He had piercing hazel eyes, and his whole countenance was expressive and great, of great determination. He was rather thin, slender of build, with quite long legs. He stooped forward from the hips while walking. He wore a heavy beard dressed in a light-colored frock coat. An otter-skin cap adorned his head, and the thick cap was the means of saving his life afterwards when the engine house was stormed by the troops and Lieutenant Green struck him over the head with a sword. Chief Clerk Kitzmiller, Ball, and myself walked into an office nearby John Brown came in, accompanied by some of his followers. He made a proposition that we allow him to keep the armory in return for which we would free every prisoner taken. The proposition was agreed on to by Kitzmiller, who refused to do it in writing. Ball had nothing to say, and I flatly refused. I told Brown that I had no right to give away Uncle Sam's property. The proposition also contemplated the arrest of a number of prominent citizens. One of Brown's sons had two uh, there went out, accompanied by Kitzmiller, to obtain signatures. While gone on this errand, a citizen whose name I have forgotten shot young Brown in the breast with buckshot. Kitzmiller ran away and left young Brown, who walked back to the yard and died within a few hours. When Brown had met his son, he asked him uh, where he was. Where was Kitzmiller? Young Brown replied that he did not come back, and he said, I am shot. Brown replied, My son, stand it as long as you can, and I hope that you get well. If you die, you will die honorably. So you can see by some of his actions what how really fanatical he was. Now, Brian, what I don't understand what was going on in, um, in this guy's mind was what his plan had been, he was going to take over this armory, He's going to take all these guns, and he was going to arm all these slaves and have this slave army. Now, in theory, I can see how he would maybe think that taking this armory 
might be something that would be beneficial. But in practice, how in the world are you even going to get the word out to all these slaves, these thousands of slaves that all you have these probably 100,000 guns? And how are you going to hold this place very long with 20, 25 men? Yeah, especially once the, uh, the government finds out they're going to send troops. Yeah, and then that's exactly what happened. And, and I look at this and I'm thinking, and I've tried to figure out in his mind how, you know, we don't have modern technology. We don't, right. <laughs> you know, how do you get the word out? How are you going to physically get the word out? Well, how are you going to transport that many rifles? You know, the logistics of it, like you said, I mean, one is notifying the, the slaves that you have the weapons, but then how, you know, you're not going to be able to sit there and keep that building forever. So, yeah. How, yeah, logistically, I don't think it was well thought it, out. It, it's, it, it, a lot of the ways it just seems so crazy, and then the other ways you think, well, you know, I don't know. Did he? Maybe there's more to this story than we're being told. Maybe he had other people already working out there, but I doubt it. But I, I doubt it because I've never heard of that as we read this story. Um, let me move on a little bit, and I'll read a little bit more of Ben Mills' quote. He said, Brown, from his conversation in the matter, was evidently was anticipating volunteers all day and appeared disappointed. If anyone slept in the engine house that night, I was not aware of it. Brown would not allow any light. His men had sat around on the floor and against the walls, guns in hand, waiting for developments and what daylight would bring. Brown at intervals co conversed in low tones with his men as if trying to inspire them with renewed courage. He also talked, about, uh, talked with us prisoners, saying he was willing to march out with us all and release us at the at the second lock. I guess he was talking about a, another place. When the subject of slavery was mentioned, he lost all patience, declaring that the Southern people were making slaves of their brothers and kinsmen. We concluded among ourselves that he was crazy on that subject and said to him that if, if he was taken prisoner, we would not be in favor of hanging him. Brown's sons both died in the engine house before morning. Now this is what he's talking about is when they had retreated after the townspeople had started shooting at them and everything, everything started falling apart. The townspeople just went crazy that in Harper's Ferry. They started shooting at them and I mean it was some, some really uh, uh, eccentric things happened there. And so Brown was forced into this engine house. He took these four men, these prisoners with him in there in his, in his tight band that was around him. And there he waited till daylight, and then as later we, as we know that Robert E. Lee and the Marines came in and you know and he he kind of puts John Brown puts me in the mind of somebody like Jim Jones. In what all yeah. happened, you know that's kind of what he makes me think of. Yeah, yeah, you, you just don't know what's going on in a, in a mind like that. Yeah, but this wasn't his. You know he had he was used to violence. I mean this man had been out like I said in Kansas and and P he was well known. Oh, Mills yeah. said when he first saw him, he knew that that, that man, was, that Brown from Kansas, he said. So he had made a name for himself there before he ever came to Harper's Ferry. But he had a house stored. He had several hundred guns, um, pikes, which is like a spear on mm -hmm. a pole. Um, he had all kinds of armament. So, like I said, Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart and him, they came in and busted the doors down and they hit him over the head. That one guy hit him over the head with a sword and like knocked him unconscious and everything. None of the, none of the hostages were hurt. But um, Ben Mills would later have to go back to the trial and testify. 
of what he saw and what Brown said and so forth. And so it came, the final chapter for Brown is, of course, they hung him. And we know the song, which was sung during the Civil War, John Brown's body lies a boulder in the grave. Yeah. And it, it inspired some people because of what he did, although it was crazy it was, for some people that was inspiration that were, you know, passionate abolitionists as well. So Ben Mills comes back to Harrodsburg. He's, uh, uh, th- everything is changing. The war is starting. He'd lost his business because he hadn't been there. So he decides to go into the distillery business. He's going to distill spirits. So he goes out and buys some land uh, on Shawnee Run there north of Harrodsburg. He starts his distillery. The war breaks out. Uh, his son Charles, who's uh, rides with General John Hunt Morgan for the Southern cause. There are some stories about Mills that he went to um, Fayetteville Armory during the war and worked, and I have never proven that at all. I'd, there's no records left of Fayetteville. They were all burned, but uh, I do not believe that. Uh, I pretty much know that he never left Harrodsburg. Pretty much stayed there trying to get this distillery going. It was not successful. Um, by the way, he said that uh, the Michigan troops, after the Battle of Parable, broke into his shop, and he brought uh, a spear, a Sharps carbine, and a Colt revolver back from from Harper's Ferry that John Brown had armed, <laughs> that they found in the houses where he had all these arms stored. Right. He brought them back as souvenirs, and the Michigan troops stole them after the war. <laughs> uh, there's also a story about Ben Mill's wife, um, after the Battle of Parable, there was a, a Texas trooper that was taken to her house that was severely wounded, and uh, they knew he wasn't going to make it. He was very, but he lived for a few days, and Miss Mills took care of him and, and was very compassionate to the, to the soldiers after the Battle of Parable. Uh, but Ben fell on hard times. It, it's kind of a sad, he had such an illustrious career. One of the things that we skipped over, I didn't get to, Brian, when we were talking about his gun making, supposedly in 1842, Kit Carson came to Harrodsburg with two of his men, Alexander Godey and William Fontenelle, and they were playing that trip out west, you know, with, uh, so uh, they uh, supposedly had three guns made by Mills, and they stayed there for a few days. And, and How many of his guns are still in existence, do we know? Uh, well, it it's hard to say. I've probably seen, I've probably seen a hundred, 150 of them. Wow. Which is more than any of other that I've ever seen of any maker anywhere. But he probably produced a lot of stuff. Um, he didn't produce guns in the tradition that other gun makers were doing here. He was doing his, his own thing. His Canadian training had gotten him in a whole area of gun making that wasn't going on here in Kentucky. So these were... I mean, would you consider them like Kentucky long rifles no. or the opposite? They're the opposite. They, he did not grow up in that tradition. Okay. So that's so what you Primarily the gun trade was like an apprenticeship. You know, a father would teach a son or some, some apprentice to him. Right. And whatever he knew, he passed that on. So that style of work would continue from one to the other. What's the difference between the style he produced and the Kentucky long rifles? Dramatically different. His were um, uh, high technology totally looked different. They really weren't very ornamented. They were very plain. Mechanically far superior. Everything was totally handmade. 
everything. He didn't buy anything but barrel blanks, and he would bore them and rifle them. He experimented with different types of rifling, which are grooves cut right. in the barrel to make the ball spin. He experimented with that. He was one of the first gun makers around here to use cast steel for gun barrels, hmm. which was a much harder steel, which allowed the bullets to not wear the barrel as fast, so you could get by with a faster twist in the rifling. So he, he knew his business as well as anybody I've ever seen. Uh, he produced extremely high-quality guns. I've never seen one that, no matter what shape and condition it's in, that the locks and triggers and things didn't work. Today? So today. Uh, you can't find one. that it, his, his, his tempering of steel and everything is far superior to anything I've ever seen. So he was, he was a really good gun maker. So he was decades ahead of everyone else. In technology, you know, I have a letter that he wrote to the Washington uh, Ordnance uh, Arsenal, excuse me, uh, for gunpowder test in 1839-40. You know, he, he, he was always keeping up with technology. And, um, and I, that's what I, you don't expect a guy from central Kentucky to be that on the edge of that. Or forefront of that. Well, even that period of time, you just don't think of a lot of technology being applied in, in certain areas, you know, right. of their life. So, yeah, that I think we'd be surprised if we could go to his shop and walk in and see what kind. Of, I know he had twelve, fifteen men working with him at one time. He had several other guys that apprenticed to him that that you see their work looks just like his, you know, identical. You can't hardly tell them apart. So, and they say he was, he was really, uh, I think he was a very, um, he, he had his quality standards very high, and he expected that out of you, too. Was there any other famous gun makers in this area, or Central Kentucky or Kentucky, that would stand out, or maybe even Tennessee, maybe the neighboring states? That oh, there were hundreds of gun makers. Uh, some but, I mean, if, you know, would be considered well, in a class with him. No. No, not not in Kentucky. Not at that time. Right. Not at that time. I think he was the kind of the piece. Those of us that study this stuff, we look to him as kind of the gold standard as far as quality. And then there was other people doing as good a quality, but they were connected to him. Okay. So everything comes kind of back to him. So we we don't know who, like I said, I'd give anything to know who he learned to trade under. And and who learned under him, too. Yeah, we have some apprentices, you know, Lucian Love, uh, Petty from Lancaster, J.H. Petty from Lancaster, Thomas Wilson from Lexington. Um, there was another one, um, Stone, uh, Andrew Stone. Um, there was a guy that started the Tyler, Texas Armory. I'm trying to think of his name. It'll come to me in a second. But they were all accomplished gun makers. But, again, when you see their work, it looked just like his. You know, so obviously he was the – the main influence in this area at that time. But uh, anyway, he, he, he goes bankrupt in 1867. It's kind of a sad ending to his illustrious career. He goes bankrupt because of the, number one, I think there was a recession going on at that time. The distillery business didn't work out for him. It's hard for a man his age to start all over learning a new business. You know, and uh, he lived uh, very well. His house is still standing on uh, Beaumont Avenue in in Harrodsburg, um, his, uh, you could tell by that house that he lived very well, and it all come falling in on him. He moved to Lexington in 1869 with his son and uh, Charles, and they started a gunsmith's business over there, which at that time, the gun companies like Colt, Remington, all these people were, were the, the Civil War brought all this technology out, and, and now 
the little private gun maker working in a small town, he was going to have a hard time making a living because okay. they could buy stuff much better than he could or, or faster than he could make it, you know, and cheaper. So his business started going away. Um, he, he, he quit the business in uh, 1883 and sold his tools. Um, he came back to Harrodsburg. He died in August the 6th, 1888. He's buried in Spring Hill Cemetery in Harrodsburg without a marker. Really? Yeah, <laughs> and we need to get him a marker up. He does. He needs one. It's, it's never had a marker. It's not that it was there and was destroyed or anything, but it, it, it never had a marker. His son, Charles, moved to Louisville. He stayed in the gunsmith business there and died in 1889. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South podcast, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. If you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends, leave a five-star review, and comment. This will help others find our podcast. And we'll see you next week with a new podcast.